0: The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray together. God, thank you for the gift to gather together, help us to be people of love, people that Live out uh, your calling on our lives individually and together to be love uh, to those around us. Pray in Jesus' good name. Amen. So, faithful servants are those who know what they got and they know it's not theirs, and they pour it out for the good of other people. In January of 2010, a magnitude 7.3 earthquake um, decimated the already fragile and vulnerable country of Haiti. You might remember that. About 30 aftershocks followed each registering at a 4.0 or greater. And uh, the rubble began to pile up and we all watched in horror as the brittle infrastructure and foundation of that country um, just sort of toppled over. And we all asked a lot of questions. Uh, Nobody was sure what to do next. There were a lot of attempts to rush in and help. But really, and even today, there's a lot of questions that remain in Haiti that preceded that earthquake and immediately followed it. More questions than answers, for sure. In the immediate aftermath of that quake, I remember talking about it with my wife in our kitchen. We lived up in Missouri, and our church knew some missionaries there. And we were taking up a special offering and just kind of talking about, the complexity of that problem and our daughter who was 5 at the time was nearby and taking it all in and had some questions of her own and we tried to address those but ultimately what that led to for her was this one question which was why doesn't god give those people what they need that just kind of bothered her pretty precocious question for a 5 year old but that's just kind of my daughter so I sensed a teachable moment, right? So I went to the cabinet and I grabbed one of those little bags of goldfish crackers and we sat down at the table for a snack. And I gave her the biggest handful of goldfish crackers. I, mean, I emptied the sack on her and just plopped it down right in front of her. And I gave myself uh, a single goldfish cracker. And it's like, hey, let's eat snack time, you know, and I eat my cracker and she starts chipping away at her pile and she's eating and I'm, I'm out. Right. And so I'm just sitting there and watching her and she's watching me and I start complaining, you know, why, why do you get all those? And I don't have enough. I'm awfully hungry. It's not fair that you have so many crackers and I don't have any. Why, why would God do this to me? Why would God leave me with no crackers and some people have a whole bunch? Now, she's a smart kid. I've told you that already. And so her conclusion was, hey, just reach in the bag and get some more crackers, Dad. Like, just grab some more. But I showed her the bag and I held it upside down and shook it and it was empty. There were no more crackers to be had. So I laid it on thick. Oh, I'm so hungry. What am I going to do? It's not fair that I don't have enough. And I don't know to this day if she was just sick of my whining or if she was like convicted by the Holy Spirit. But I remember this so well. Just a single finger went down on the table and she trapped a cracker between the tip of her finger and the table and she pushed it over to me. Just like that. And she just watched, you know. And man, I ate that cracker. You'd have thought it was a filet mignon. I mean, I talked about how good that cracker was, right? And then she did it again. And she did it again. And then she got me a little chubby five-year-old handful, and she put it down. Now listen, I don't even like those crackers that much. They're not that delicious. But I ate every single one, and I talked about how delicious it was. And that night, my daughter learned a lesson and I learned a lesson too and it's a lesson that I did not know in the fourth grade when Jason Tabaris moved to my school. I went to this little bitty school. He lived somewhere in the county I think and like moved over to our side of town so this little kindergarten through eighth grade school. Uh, When you got a new kid you noticed because there were only like 30 kids in your class and Jason was a little different too. The things I remember about Jason most of all were one, that he was pretty short. We were all in fourth grade, so none of us were giants, but he was even shorter than average. The second thing I remember is that he had a hot temper, and that would come out especially in sports. He was good at sports, he was fast, he was quick, he could play basketball. He was always first picked in kickball. Like he was just a good athlete, but he also had this hot temper that would flare up. In fact, within just a couple of weeks of coming to our school, Jason had already been in a couple of fights, and like the, the legend of why he came to our school, that perhaps he was, that he had been kicked out of other schools for acts of violence, like it just kinda grew. And the third thing I remember about Jason is he had this rat tail down the back of his neck, and I remember instantly wanting a rat tail. Like I just thought that would be the coolest thing ever. But I made a mental note to myself that it would not be wise to make Jason angry. That would not be a smart thing to do. Which leads me to the lunchroom. I don't know what your lunchroom was like growing up, but my cafeteria didn't serve like the best meals. They weren't the best. There was like all brown day, which was like a grilled cheese, brown tater tots, gooey brown applesauce. I would always get chocolate milk for a slightly darker shade of brown. But if the tray was brown, it's like the lunch lady would push it to me and I wouldn't know where the entree ended and the sides began. It's just one blur of brown. Then there was goulash day. Now, I don't know what goulash is supposed to be. All I know is that in elementary school, goulash was like this random combination of noodles and sauces and like maybe tiny diced vegetables. And I would just sort of pick through it and grab the least suspicious ingredients and try to get through it. And so what these bad meals would serve to accomplish is a, a large amount of trading. So you'd be sitting at the table, and I understand these days kids aren't allowed to trade at lunch or whatever, for or whatever for health reasons, but we would trade all the time. And it was like the floor of the New York Stock Exchange in our cafeteria. It was just stuff shouting all over the place. You, you'd trade what you didn't like or in combination for something that you could tolerate just, just to get through the meal. But there was one meal that when I saw it on the menu, I would look forward to it for days. And that was crispido Day. Now, I don't know if you know what a crispido is, but it's something between like a soft taco and a flauta. It's like a burrito kind of thing, but just like meat, just like spicy meat in a tortilla and then kind of deep fried. So it's just, I mean, it's hard to beat. It's just hard to beat. Anytime you got meat and a tortilla and like oil, it's, it's gonna be a good day. So I love these things. And I would always try to rush to the front of the line and offer up anything else on my plate to get as many crispitos as I could. I knew who didn't like crispitos. I didn't understand them, but I knew them. And so I would negotiate these trades. And the goal was, man, I wanna get four or five Crespitos. That, that would be a good day. Well, I remember one fateful day where no lie I landed seven Crespitos, seven. So this is a good day, right? And I sit down and I'm just puffed up with pride and hungry and gluttonous and just ready to go. And along comes Jason. Now we're, we're friends, like we played sports together, it was fine, and without a trace of malice in his voice, he says, hey, give me one of your Crespitos. He only had two. I had seven, and I don't know what got into me. I already told you his reputation for violence, but I looked at Jason, and I said, no, and he kind of looked surprised. This was not the answer he was expecting, and he was like, he pulled the fourth grade trump card. Well, it's not fair that you have seven, and I have two. Just give me one, and I said, get your own Crispitos." That's what I told him. Get your own Crispitos. And he goes, Don't cop an attitude with me. And I knew I was on thin ice. I am not a confrontational person. I am a peacemaker in every sense of the word. But my gluttony was what was informing my voice when I looked at him and said, I'll cop an attitude with anybody I want. Now, I still don't know why this story ends the way it ends. But it ends with him just walking off. He just walked off. And I ate all seven Crespitos without a trace of guilt. Without a trace of guilt. Now, I tell you the story of the goldfish and of Jason and of the crispitos really for a singular reason. And that is when I think back on those stories I know that there was an important lesson embedded in each of those events and that's this. There is plenty to go around and it's not God's fault when some people don't have what they need. This is not an issue of God's injustice. It is an issue of my clenched fist that is unwilling to share. Ecclesia, we are a community full, and I mean full, of generous people. It is a beautiful thing to watch you deploy your finances and your time and and your talents and your gifts um, for the good of others. I love the story that we share here on the West Side. It's a story of humility and unity and two communities becoming one community and just a beautiful picture of the kingdom. I love that. I tell that story as often as I can because it's a beautiful one. But I'm afraid that we might be tempted to become comfortable in that. I fear that there's a risk that given all of that, um, that we might be tempted to become self-congratulatory, that we would recognize what God has done in the past and just be satisfied at what God has done. But we are not here for ourselves. We're not here for ourselves. God has put us as a people in this unique place, and it is a unique place, at this unique time, and we are in a unique time, to get stuff done for the kingdom. Earlier this summer, Chris was out and he talked about, in depth really, about who we are, that we are Houston's holistic, missional, Christian community. And there's a lot in there that we don't have time to unpack. You can go back and listen to the podcast. And that's a beautiful thing that we get to be. But what I don't want us to lose sight of is the mission. Why are we here? Why does God have us here? Last week we saw some great teaching on the rhythms of Ecclesia, what it means to be kind, to be hospitable, to be real, to seek God, to seek beauty, to serve God others. And we talk specifically about that in the context of what we are doing globally, in particular last week with our brothers and sisters in Puerto Rico. But one of the great joys of my role is to try to translate what it would look like for us to be Ecclesians on the west side. What does it mean to live out those rhythms in our neighborhood in a unique way? And so How do we steward who we are in this place? Where we are? How do we steward what we have in order to join Jesus in the great mission that He is on? How does He inspire us in the context of those who are in our midst? And while we're at it, what is our midst? Where are we? And who are we called to serve? You know, we purposefully did not call this Ecclesia Piney Point. We called it Ecclesia on the west side. I want you to look at this map. Who are we trying to reach? Why are we here? What, where is here? How do we live out our rhythms? Sure, in memorial. How do we serve others in Spring Branch? North of the freeway. How do we seek beauty up and down the energy corridor? What does it look like for us to be real in Katy and in Richmond and in Sugarland and in Missouri City and in Cyprus? How do we practice hospitality in the international district, which is so close from where you're sitting right now? You know, Greater West Houston has a million and a half people in it, and it's climbing fast. In 20 years, it'll be two and a half million. We are right in the middle of it. What does a faithful servant in that context look like? A faithful servant is someone who knows what they got, but they know it's not theirs, and they pour it out for the good other people. I want to read a passage of Scripture from Matthew 24, starting in verse 45. The trustworthy servant is the one whom the master puts in charge of all the servants of his household. It is the trustworthy servant who not only oversees all the work, but also ensures the servants are properly fed and cared for. And it is, of course, crucial that a servant who is given such responsibility performs his responsibility to his master's standard. So when the master returns, he finds his trust has been rewarded. For then the master will put that good servant in charge of all his possessions. But imagine that the master's trust was misplaced, that the supposedly responsible servant is actually a thief who says to himself, my master's been gone so long, he's probably not coming back. Then he beats his fellow servants and dines and drinks with drunkards, Well, when the master returns, as certainly he will, the servant will be caught unawares. The master will return on a day and at an hour when he isn't expected, and he will cut his worthless servant into pieces and throw him into darkness with the hypocrites where there is weeping and grinding of teeth. A faithful servant, a trustworthy servant, is... Someone who knows what they got, that knows it isn't theirs, and that is willing to pour it out for the good of others. As Jesus is talking about what it means to be the faithful servant of a master, it's a recognition that we've been given something really valuable, that we've been entrusted with something that's a big deal, and that we would not waste that, that we would not take for granted what our master has given to us to share. That that we would steward that well in a wise and responsible and meaningful and beautiful way. That that we wouldn't waste the opportunity that we have. And I think by now, as we've gathered for months, um, that we can recognize there's, there's something special to what has happened so far. But there is something far more special to come if we are the faithful servants that we're called to be. I love what we are able to do globally as a community. I love our living water stuff. I love the stories that we get to tell about partnering with people in Argentina and Peru and Puerto Rico, all around the world. That, that's, that's wonderful, it's a beautiful thing. But what I've learned in the last couple years is that it's sometimes easier to love the nations than it is to love my neighbor. It's sometimes easier to cut a check that will do some really really great work overseas, and it's much harder to get up close with people that live within 15 minutes of me. Those are both important works, don't misunderstand me. But I found that it's easier to love the nation sometimes than it is to love my neighbors. So today and most of this month, I want to introduce you to some ways that in a unique way, we, Ecclesia on the west side, can engage in our neighborhoods to love our neighbors. It's so rooted in our ethic as followers of Christ, it goes back to the Old Testament law. Leviticus 19.18 is the first place we read, love your neighbor as yourself. When the Pharisees come and try to trick Jesus uh, in Matthew 22, he repeats that command that we're to love God and we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. When the teacher of the law comes to Jesus and starts asking questions about the greatest commandment and Jesus kind of throws it back to him, what, what, are the, what, you, what, what do you say? And he says, well, I need to love my neighbor as myself. And then he kicks it back to Jesus and he's like, yeah, but who's my neighbor? That question is a really important question for us to answer. Who's our neighbor? And in Luke 10, when that happens, Jesus answers that question with the parable of the Good Samaritan. You remember that story, the religious people walk by the man that's in need. They, I assume, were preoccupied with the task of the day or perhaps unsympathetic to his plight because he was unclean, he wasn't like them. I don't know why they passed by, they just seemed sort of self-satisfied, and so they passed by. And only the good Samaritan stops and cares for that man and shows him grace. And after Jesus gets done telling the story, he throws it back at the teacher of the law. And he says, well, who who was a neighbor to that guy? And the teacher of the law was forced to answer. It's the one that showed mercy on him. And I think when we ask the question, who's our neighbor? The answer to that question is whoever needs us to be. It's wherever we see a need, we're ready to engage because that's our neighbor that's our that's somebody that we are called to care for and love and in a meaningful way engage anyone who needs us to be is our neighbor because faithful servants are those who know what they got they know it's not theirs and they are ready to pour it out for the good of others So let me tell you about some things that are right up close to us right now, some things coming the rest of this month that I want to introduce uh, us to as a community. Opportunities for us to be good neighbors where we live. You already saw the car video today. If you were here up at the top, this beautiful opportunity just to nominate people who lost their cars during the storm that haven't been able to replace those cars. Jump online, nominate somebody if you know somebody in need. That would be A tremendous way to be a neighbor to somebody that you know. There's an opportunity this very week to be good neighbors here in the villages with VIF happening, the Independence Festival happening on Wednesday, thousands of people come for the equivalent of this beautiful small town fair that we get to celebrate as a community. Uh, We have the privilege of hosting that Uh, We have the added advantage of not having to plan it all, like a committee does that. And we just get to help throw a good party, right? And so um, tomorrow afternoon, there's some stuff that needs to get carted around. If you're free after work, we could use some people to help. Tuesday's setup day, so there'll be people here uh, throughout the day helping set up. If you got a few hours and are off work, that'd be great. Wednesday, the actual day of the festival with the parade and the games and the Ferris wheel and the pony rides and the face painting and the food service and all that goes into being a good host. We need people to help do that. So when you leave today, there's a table outside. There's a t-shirt you can grab as a commitment to say, hey, I'll be here because I know that as an Ecclesian, uh, I want to show hospitality and this is a part of who we are and this is our community. Uh, We get to be together and have a good party and have a good have some good food, and and have a great time with our families. It would be huge for us to just provide a small army and show our community, hey, we're here to serve you and to love you and to be good neighbors to you. I'd invite you to, to jump on with that. There are numerous other things we do in an ongoing way. We already talked about living water and all these partnerships. One of the things I think about first when I think about Ecclesia is the Harmony House Barbecue. And some of you are aware of that, and some of you aren't. But at our downtown campus, uh, we've got homeless brothers and sisters that are around all the time. And so on a regular basis, uh, we get together and share a meal uh, with uh, them in community. And it's not this, like, we pack a paper, uh, brown paper bag lunch and, like, take it to them and hand it to them and say, go and be well fed. Like, that's not the approach, right? We want to We wanna be real with people and show hospitality, so we sit at the same table and we learn their name and we learn their story and we share good food because we're brothers and sisters, like we're in community together. And that's a beautiful thing and some of you have helped out with that. You know what an incredible uh, ministry that that is. But one of the things that I've wrestled with since joining the team here is like, what's our equivalent to that on the west side? What might God be inviting us into that has the same sort of heartbeat, uh, even though it's not going to be exactly the same thing in our different neighborhoods? And so, if we're going to discover that, I think that in the coming weeks, uh, we might stumble upon the answer. We're going to introduce you to three local nonprofits, uh, as well as encourage you to give to uh, a great back-to-school initiative with some partners that are just sort of scattered around the west side here. The first one is PLI, Prestige Learning Institute. It is a language school down in the International District. Um, it is an incredible, incredible place, mostly among uh, Muslim refugee population, teaching English to adults, um, showing incredible hospitality, um, taking care of their kids, uh, drinking tea together, uh, loving each other uh, really, really well. They're going to be here next week, um, and we'll get to interview them a little bit and introduce their work to you. If you live on the south side, whether that's you know, down toward the International District or even uh, Missouri City or Stafford or, or Sugar Land, uh, that would be a great place to plug in. Uh, if you love teaching, if you love hospitality, especially if you are a woman. This is, this is mostly uh, a female student body that is a part of that, and uh, that would be an incredible way to engage. They'll be here next week. You'll get a chance to meet them. Beautiful, beautiful people. Uh, the week after that, Sean Palmer's preaching, and that'll be great. But then on the 22nd, um, on the 22nd, Family Point will be here. Now, Family Point is an organization that Ecclesia has partnered with for years, but some of that has been difficult because you know we were downtown and they're way out west, but now we're in the same neighborhood. And so on the 22nd, their executive director is gonna be here uh, and, and preach for us. She is incredible. Uh, she's gonna share about their work uh, and invite you into that. A lot of after-school work, uh, a lot of mentoring, a lot of tutoring, if you have a background in education. It's just a beautiful work that they're doing uh, and It is out west of here, kind of Derry-Ashford, Kirkwood area. Uh, if you live out that way, it'd be uh, super easy to plug in. Even if you're out toward Highway 6 or Katy, um, it would be a great fit for you to engage with uh, the people at Family Point. And then the week after that, we're going to welcome our friends from Spring Spirit, uh, which some of you are already involved with. Uh, I got to go up and meet them a few weeks ago and interact with some of their team. Unbelievable what they're doing kind of far up north of the highway um, through baseball and through mentoring and so much more. Um, I can't wait for them to share that with you and to explain their heartbeat behind that and share their story. Uh, They are doing phenomenal, phenomenal work, and so we'll invite you into that as well. And then as we get into August, I know we did this uh, last year, but we'll engage with MAM, with the Memorial Assistance Ministry, uh, and their back to school drive, and we'll get to talk about that in August and invite you to participate uh, in that as well. But here's the challenge in all that, as as we learn of what's going on already in our midst, in our neighborhoods, whether that's south or west or north, um, it's an invitation for us to be faithful servants, to engage as God leads us. To be those faithful servants that know what we have, but we know it's not ours. We're not going to have a clenched fist. Uh, We're going to share again and again and again the good things that God has given us. We're going to pour it out for the good of others. And I think that's going to take two things, right? The first thing it's going to take is a relational investment. Again, a lot of times it's easy to write the check and feel good about that contribution, and that's important. Don't misunderstand me but a relational investment and getting up close with people is so valuable for us to be who we're called to be particularly with at-risk youth which a couple of these organizations are so laser focused on and we've talked recently about what would it look like for Ecclesia to be a community that where every single person every year engaged with at-risk youth and that means learning a name that means learning a story. That means spending time. That means investing in a relational way. To, to visit a part of town you don't normally visit. To swing a bat or teach a class or mentor a student. Um, to give relationally. And then the second thing I think it's going to take is that we're willing to mix it up with people who aren't like us. Um... I, 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 don't, I don't know why I sense this, but I, but I do. I sense that one of the reasons we are where we are is because we are right in the middle of just this beautiful diversity. On every, on every side, we live in this city that is just so interwoven and beautiful and looks like a gorgeous stained glass window. Um, and I think that's part of the reason we're here. Because we are just in the middle of all of that. Maybe more so than you even realize. Right now, in the one-story building, there's a small, faithful Japanese congregation that's gathering to worship. Like, right over, right over there. Um, and I, you know, I understand there's language barriers and there's things that might prevent us ever from really being unified as a community. But... We're gonna be looking for opportunities to have a potluck with them, to learn their names. Pastor Noah is incredible. Um, Beautiful stories in that community and opportunities to connect in a substantial way. We have an Arabic congregation that meets on Sunday nights every week. Um, They eat together afterwards. So unless you know Arabic, which maybe some of you do, we have a brilliant, brilliant group of people. Uh, You wouldn't understand a word that was said, but you'd eat some good, stinking food afterward. You understand what I'm saying? Just a couple weeks ago, a member of our community had some Muslim friends that needed a large room to celebrate an iftar during Ramadan, and they just wanted a place to eat. And we opened up our building to them, and we got to eat some great food and learn their stories. Uh, I sat with a limo driver and his wife from Lebanon. They were wonderful to my kids. We had great conversation, Um, there's just these opportunities to mix it up with people who aren't exactly like us. Um, To visit these parts of town where we don't just consume their culture, but we contribute to their culture. Chinatown's a great place to eat, but it's also a great place to go and make some friends. Um, So rather than be consumers, what does it mean to contribute? I ran into a member of our community a few months ago now um, they were given a family member a tour of our facility, and we were just talking about how things were going, lots to celebrate. But then they said something that has stuck with me ever since, and it's informed a lot of decision making as I think about who who are we, why are we here, what do we need to do next. And the statement that they made was, "If Ecclesia on the West Side is going to just be a bunch of people that are just like me, I'm not interested." Pretty bold statement to say to the campus pastor, right? But as I thought about that, I thought, man, if Ecclesi on the west side is just going to be a bunch of people just like me, I'm not sure if I'm interested. Because I think God has us in this really unique place at this really unique time with a really unique group of people that are talented and gifted and have so much to contribute. Because he's up to something and he's calling us to something. And faithful servants are those who know what they got and they know it isn't theirs and they pour it out for the good of others. Chris said it a couple weeks ago. Jesus, if he were around today, would likely move through Piney Point on his way to Montrose. And when he said that, I looked around the room and everybody was shaking their head. And what that tells me is we already agree on all this. We already agree. So what do we do? And I think over the coming weeks, uh, there's going to be some moments of inspiration. There's going to be some times when you really understand, that's what God's calling me to do. And there'll be some stuff we do together, where we partner with these organizations in a larger way. But there'll also be some things that you just need to feel complete permission to go do it in the name of Jesus, because that's what Ecclesians do. We just love our neighbors well and faithfully. It comes down to me to this passage from 1 Timothy chapter 6. Paul's given Tim- Timothy some instructions about what church life should be. And uh, he says this in verse 17. Here's what you say to those who are wealthy in regard to this age. Don't become high and mighty or place all your hope on a gamble for riches. Instead, fix your hope on God. The one who richly provides everything for our enjoyment. Tell them to use their wealth for good things, be rich in good works. There's an exclamation mark after that. If they are willing to give generously and share everything, then they will send ahead a great treasure for themselves and build their futures on a solid foundation. As a result, they will surely take hold. Of eternal life. Another translation says they will take hold of that which is truly life. And so many of us live thinking we know what the life is. And we live in an era and we live in a place where it would be easy to be confused about what living the life really looks like. But I wonder if we were able to just have this generous imagination To understand that it is our job to give and give and give. And not live with a clenched fist, but to recognize that faithful servants are those that know what they got. But they know it's not theirs. And they're willing to pour it out for the good of others. I think that that would not only honor God if we were to live that way but I think that it would bring the redemption and the beauty and the restoration to our neighborhoods and our city that we so desperately all desire to see. Let me pray for us. Father, we're grateful for the goodness that you have shown in our lives. We're grateful for uh, the generosity that you have demonstrated, that you've shown as an example for us to go and do likewise. And so in our neighborhoods, on our streets, regardless what side of town we live on, I pray that you would stir up our imagination and help us to be faithful servants that understand we've been given much and it is not ours to hoard. It is ours to pour out for the good of our brothers and sisters all around us. We're grateful as we approach the table today that this is a reminder of what generosity and sacrifice and humility really look like. We're grateful for this weekly reminder that you've given of your body, you've given of your very blood, not just to save us from our sins, but to teach us how to live. And so as we commune today, we pray a blessing upon the bread and the cup, but we also pray that we could live like you lived, pouring ourselves out for the good of others so that your kingdom will grow, that restoration will come, that we'll experience shalom, that we can live peacefully and lovingly with our neighbors. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.